Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 13, Episode 2. Today, I'm so happy to be in talking with food writer Diana Henry. Diana was born in Northern Ireland, and she is the author of cookbooks on subjects including cooking chicken, healthy eating, gastropubs, preserving Nordic cuisine, and more. She is a James Beard Award-winning author and beloved food writer with book sales in more than 950,000 copies worldwide. She has regular columns in the Daily Telegraph and Waitrose Weekend, and her work has appeared on BBC Good Food, House and Garden, Delicious, and Beyond. Her broadcast appearances include BBC Radio 4 and more. Diana has won numerous awards in her journalism and books, including Cooking Read Journalist of the Year, Cookbook of the Year from the Guild of Food Writers, Cookery Writer of the Year, and Cookery Book of the Year at the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards. Food Book of the Year at the Andre Simon Food and Drink Book Awards and James Beard Award. Melissa Clark wrote in the New York Times that her writing along with that of Yotam Odalenge has mastered the art of combining familiar and global flavors in ways that take us past our collective culinary comfort level. Diana Henry is the author of 12 books including Crazy Water Pickled Lemons, Roast Figs, Sugar Snow, Plenty, Salt Sugar Smoke, A Change of Appetite, A Bird in the Hand, Simple How to Eat, A Peach, and From the Oven to the Table. She is reissuing the book Figs, Sugar, Snow, and that's going to be reissued uh, the day after this uh, airing, and we're going to have links where you could purchase that ahead of time, or if tomorrow, you could purchase it right away. I'm going to take you now to my conversation with Diana Henry that I enjoyed very much. I do apologize that uh, for whatever reason, I had a difficulty on my side sound-wise, and I sounded like my head was in a bucket, but uh, luckily, Diana sounded wonderful, and on we go. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Teen Jones. Today, I'm very, very happy to be talking with author Diana Henry, who has written 12 books, including Crazy Water, Pickled Lemons, Roast Figs, Sugar Snow, Plenty, Salt Sugar Smoke, A Change of Appetite, A Bird in the Hand, Simple, How to Each Eat a Peach, and From the Oven to the Table. Diana, welcome to the podcast. Very glad to be with you. I really am um, so happy to be having you here today and be talking with you. I want to talk about your upbringing in Northern Ireland and how it influenced your love of food. Um, I think I grew up right from a very early age in a household where food was important. There wasn't necessarily fancy, but my mom was an incredibly good cook and she'd done domestic science at school and she believed. I mean, I did, when somebody used first used the phrase from scratch to me, I thought, what the hell does that mean? Because what <laughs> but that's cooking. You eat, you eat every day, you cook from scratch. So I thought that was a kind of odd thing. We just had good food every day. Um, and also I think, well, certainly when I've traveled around the UK, um, I think that agricultural areas um put more just put more kind of effort into their cooking and they're more knowledgeable about it. So my mum, she would just always know what what particular kind of potatoes were in season um or she can know where the apples had come from had they come from Armagh had they so we were always very aware of that kind of thing and then my dad would get pheasants sometimes that people had shot or he would get a gift of a wild salmon because we had had wild salmon in those days and it was delicious so I think that food was they, they couldn't be called foodies my parents because there was none of that kind of like pretension about it but I think we honored food um my mother all the time 
she she used up leftovers and she would never, ever, the idea of throwing bones out, that would be terrible. There would just be soup made. So that's what I've always done, which I think makes me quite old fashioned in a way. Um, but when I go, when I do that kind of cooking, like if there's if there's a pot of stock on the um, hob here right over from the kitchen table, um, I feel that is a real home. I mean, my my children will will say to me still, "Oh, mom, oh, mom, that smells gorgeous." And then at Christmas it changes because you start using cinnamon and stuff like that. But I really think there's a kind of, and I think it's coming back because it's to do with climate change and everything, not wasting things and using every bit of an animal and all the rest of it. But I grew up like that. That wasn't odd. We didn't have anything out of season, partly because that wasn't the way then. But yeah. also in Northern Ireland, you didn't have kind of, you didn't have fancy supermarkets. You yeah. had, you know, you had a butcher, you had a greengrocer's and you went and you got what was in season and that's all you could get. You have this story that I've heard you tell in other podcasts and also I've seen it in written interviews and I really just was really in love with it. Can you tell the story about how um, your teacher would read Laura Ingalls Wilder stories to you? Oh, that was really, I, I loved school when I was at um, primary school. That's kind of junior school, so that goes up to 11. And when we were nine or 10, um, my teacher, Mrs. Monroe, and I can feel actually, even as I talk about this, when, when it got to the stage of the year when you put the lights on before you left school, so it was really quite dark, um, she would allow us, she would say, okay, put your, put your head down on the table. And we were able to put our arms together and lay our heads down. And she would read us. She read us all of those Laura Ingalls Wilder books, starting with um, Little House in the Big Woods. I still have my copy of Little House in the Big Woods up the stairs, and I love the cover. It's not, it's a little puffin, which I bought probably in, probably 1970 or something like that. And um, and I after she'd read them to me, I read them all at home as well. And it, it's a funny thing because when you read them, they don't necessarily have a, there's not a lot of stories, not a lot happens, yeah. except you're busy all the time just doing what it takes to survive. You're making food to put up, you get pumpkins and put them up in the, keep them up in the attic. And then you can also, because the sisters played up there and sat on them, um, and then when maple syrup comes along, you know, that's tapped. And I was completely, just completely, just ecstatic about this idea that you got something from a tree and that then you would, then, then you would boil it and that then it would turn into toffee if you boiled it to a high enough, um, to a high enough degree. And then you could pour it into snow. And then you had that, you could just break that up and have that with um i don't know if they say this in the book but i know what the kind of local thing is to have those dill pickles and yeah. warm apple juice what you call cider yeah. um and i just i thought that was a, a great thing and i was also very taken as well with i'd read in other books i read a lot of american stuff actually i had a an aunt who lived in canada she she used to send us things about kind of or me things because i was the reader kind of like about lumberjacks and you know having a really hard time in the snow and cutting down wood I seem to read a lot of books about survival and about families who cope with that. And I, I think I like the togetherness as well. And yeah. that thing that cold weather brings, you kind of have to look after yourself and you have to look after each other. Um, but yeah, I saw, eventually I went to a sugar on snow party in oh, yeah. um, Vermont. But like I was 35 by the time I did that. I had to wait for a long time. And that was lovely. And I actually thought maybe it was just an idea. It was in a Laura Ingalls Wilder book and didn't exist anymore. 
but as well as like the small parties, I saw those, you know, notices for sugar on snow parties in kind of like on church halls, um, in, in, in village halls and stuff like that. And, you know, that they had ham and coleslaw and beans and whatever, and then their maple syrup as well. And I thought this was, I'm very romantic about about America. I mean, kind of like stupidly romantic when we think that how I felt about it when Trump was in power. Oh, um, God, yeah. But I have... But I have very romantic ideas about New England, California, and definitely New York. So as a child, I was really, I was really drawn to that. Also, if you grew up in Ireland, you really think at that time, because there was the troubles, there have been other reasons for it in the past. You think a lot about leaving. And mostly yeah. when you think about leaving, you think about America, because that's the next place over, really. When we went on holiday to Dublin, when we were little, there was kind of four children, my mom and dad. So it was very expensive to go abroad because um, you usually had to go through London. So that added another flight on top. So we didn't go anywhere abroad till I was 17. And um, when we went to Dublin but for holidays every year, I would get my dad to take us to the airport. And then we watched planes taking off to go to Boston. I mean, this sounds mad now. My children have no, I mean, I'm only 60, but it was kind of, you have to remember that Northern Ireland was just a bit behind everywhere else here in the UK. And when I tell my, you know, my boys felt they were kind of like ill done to when they hadn't been to Disneyland when they were four. And it's like, look, I didn't go, I didn't go on a plane for years. Um, but I think there's something kind of good about that. I think I have a real sense of wonder that hasn't left me. And I just spent a lot of time with my imagination and reading. And I started cooking when I was about six, but initially it was just sweets and fairy cakes and that kind of thing. But I think the cooking gave me a chance to travel and so did the reading. So I think I think all the stuff that has come out in the end was always kind of going to come out, even though this is not what I planned to be at all. I was a BBC producer for years. Um, but when you look at it, you think, yeah, she was always going to write and she was always going to cook. So, you know, and she was still going to be yearning when she was 60. <laughs> so um, at what point did you decide, hey, I think I want to do some food writing. I want this to be something I do. When, when did that happen for you? That was very um, practical. I was 36. I just had my first child and um, tried to go back to work for Channel 4. I was going to do, working on a program about the social history of gardening here in, oh, wow. the, 20th, in the 20th century. Yeah, very interesting stuff and not depressing stuff. He thought it would be great. But I was never home before 9.30 at night. And then on the weekends, oh. I had to take him with me to go and do reckeys for the filming. Yeah. And honestly... I also was quite sleep deprived because he was a really bad sleeper. So I'm not sure whether I felt awful physically or it was mental or it was both. But I just thought after four weeks back in television and I had never had any intention of leaving it. But after four weeks, I just said, I can't do this. I really can't do this. I also didn't cope well with with, um, you know, my young baby being looked after by somebody else. I just couldn't seem to accept that. Yeah. But I was lucky because I just thought I'm going to, you know, I'd had I'd trained as a journalist and I loved food. And people had been saying for a long time, you ought to try that. You ought to do that instead. So um, I, I, I gave up. I got a part-time nanny who came with her friend, with her little girl as well, to look after Ted in the house. And I started writing pieces and sending them off on spec. And then I got commissioned. And then that was it. I think, to be honest with you, I think it's harder now. Um, partly because so many people want to do this for a job, yeah. which is weird because it's it's not it's not a good way to make a living. It's very precarious and it's really badly paid. 
Um, but that was it. I kind of thought this this will work. But I had no plan. I just thought I'll keep trying to, I'll keep running these pieces and hopefully I'll keep getting some of them commissioned and so it will go on. But I had no idea that I would get to where I have got to. Your first book was Crazy Water Pickled Lemons. I want to talk about that a little bit, but I also want to ask you, how did that kind of change things in your life? What, writing? Yeah. Um, I was at home, which was a whole lot dif different. I'd been in kind of like very, you know, lovely noisy offices, offices where people had lots of ideas and you're I worked one. I think my favorite thing was working on a book program. I worked on a book program for quite a long time. So every day there were new novels arriving. We were thinking, what would we do about this one? What would we do about that one? So that kind of that kind of camaraderie and that thing of working with people, I mean, disappeared overnight, really. Wow. And that was kind of both good and bad because, you know, I didn't want to be in office at that point. I wanted to be with with Ted, but yeah. I can see what it's done to me over like. 23 years now of writing I yeah. was I was the office kind of cabaret act I made everybody laugh and um after this long writing you kind of think you're a quiet person a lot of the time so you have <laughs> difficulty thinking I have difficulty thinking anyway when I go out it's like oh am I the extrovert or the introvert and then it got worse during COVID because you know we were we all had to be closed away um but it did make it immediately made a very big difference to my life because I wasn't going into somewhere with that I felt was the center of the world really i felt that about the bbc that this is you know this is a great place to be so it went and occasionally now i don't i don't want i don't want to go back and i don't think i made the wrong decision but occasionally i see a program and i think oh my god i'd love to have made that i'd love to have worked on that and now that i do books also rather than just do um pieces for magazines that is collaborative and I really love that. I love working with a creative team. Um, but that, you know, it only happens for certain periods. And then you're you're back to your writing again and being on your own. Crazy Water Pickled Lemons was a love letter to the Middle Eastern and Mediterranean cuisines. Can you talk about this book and what inspired you to write it? That, again, like, like reading Laura Ingalls Wilder, that came up from, that came from childhood reading. Uh, we didn't have a copy. Our next door neighbors had a copy. They had the Arabian Nights, and Ooh, you know yeah. it was beautifully illustrated. So there were kind of like these lovely cases with, you know, flower waters and rubies and pomegranates flowing out of them. And I thought, I mean, it was just a kind of fancy place to me. I mean, a, a you know, I mean, a pomegranate might as well have been a unicorn for all I know. I just thought it sounded like an incredible sort of place, and I got very interested in that part of the world. And when I moved to London, I actually got more interested in it because when I moved to London, I bought Claudia Roden's book, Middle East, her book of Middle Eastern cooking. And suddenly I also could get all the ingredients. I could get pomegranates. I could get barberries. I could get all the spices they mentioned. I could get, you know, bulgar weed and couscous and everything. And that was the, I also got to like Vietnamese food very much, but the Middle, Middle Eastern food, it was, and this is way before your time started. Middle Eastern food totally captured me, and I and I and I cooked it a lot of the time. But my, when I wrote the book, I was aware that I hadn't travelled it. I mean, never been to Iran. There were kind of lots of areas that I hadn't travelled to, but I knew about it from reading, and I certainly knew about the cooking. And I liked, 
I like the idea of a bit like I saw them when I was a child. I like the idea that there were dishes that you couldn't understand why they work necessarily. They'd be quite magical. Like if you make aioli, the Spanish aioli with quince, it's like, who the hell would think of that? You know, it's fruit made into a kind of garlic mayonnaise. And then yeah. there's that wonderful cake that, um, well, it's 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 in Claudia's book where you boil the oranges and you think, this will be awful. I mean, there's <laughs> what is this, what's this kind of like going to do? And then it's astonishing. And you make things like, you know, ground rice, the kind of thing that as, as a, a kind of child at school you thought was awful. But, you know, in the Middle East, they put flower waters in those and then they decorate it with petals and they serve it really cold. So it was just like, God, this 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 is amazing food. And it's not, I mean, Middle Eastern food no longer seems incredible here, definitely not in the UK. It's probably, if you went around and interviewed people, they'd probably say it was their, was their favourite cuisine for a lot of people. But that, a lot of that's got to do with Yotam, without doubt. Um, but at that stage, you didn't, I mean, I went to Lebanese restaurants and things like that. And I went to an Iranian restaurant that was in a porter cabin down near um, down near Hammersmith, kind of like not a very good area. But you went in there. I was in a car park and you went in there in the evening and it was everybody was Iranian. Everybody's Iranian. You couldn't even get a menu. They were all in Parsi. So they just kind of like they helped you choose what you wanted. And the food there. Oh, my God. The, well, the rice cooking and the lamb cooking, the lamb kebabs. They were sensational. And that's where I got to know what sabzi was. I couldn't have thought that up. You know, that all that little platter of herbs and everything and radishes. I yeah. just thought it was very, it was funny because it was um very luxurious, but it was also quite clean and, and it was healthy. And of course, there are different areas of it. And I, I think probably my favorite bits of it would be Iran and then Morocco, North Africa, because they do that thing, which I love, which is mixed the sweet and the sour or the sweet and the savory together. So I think I just, I, I I did an interview with someone from the New York Times in New York. I can't remember when it was actually, probably quite, probably about seven years ago. And she said, I mean, everybody's talking about cultural appropriation. And she said, but, but you haven't been to some of these places, but you kind of saw fit to, to write these recipes up. And I said, the thing was, this book came out of, childhood fantasies in a way and then a whole lot of enthusiasm when I got to London was able to find ingredients so I mean I was taught to cook rice and also to make Arab flatbread by people that I found in London who taught including at that restaurant actually who taught me how to do it and I completely gave you know them credit but it was a, it was sort of was a book about the fantastical to me in a way. This girl growing up in this very grey place, where you couldn't even you couldn't even get an avocado when I was little in Northern Ireland, and then being opened into this, oh god, this place that was so different, that was so a million miles away from what I'd come from, really. A lot of kind of love for the sensuous, the perfumed, the brightly coloured. I mean, that was just that was so new to me. And um, I wrote that book. I mean, when I went, I don't, I didn't even know that I had an interview with a person from a from a publishing house, and she knew that I had been ghostwriting books for people because I did that for a while after um, I left television. I wrote cookbooks for other people, and I think that's why she wanted to meet me. But then at the end of the interview, I said, "There's a book I'd like to do," and she said, "What?" 
And basically, it, this was all kind of like in my head, including the title. And I told her what it was. And then she she loved it. And she said, okay, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that back to the sales team now. So I went to a phone box and phoned my mum and said, I think I've got a book commissioned. Then I went home and because I worked in television, they're called treatments in television. I know they're called pictures in, in publishing. But I I got, I find all the kind of like visual reference stuff that I would, that that book would, would infuse that book. And I did these, did about three of these big sheets with all, things all stuck on them, kind of like properly done on even fonts and things like that as well. So I went in and I and I presented this to them. I think they thought it already existed because it was on these boards. And in my head, it already existed. All I had to do was write it. And that was a kind of joy because I had Ted. Um, so I looked after him during the day. And then I would always, I still like writing at night. That's my favorite thing to do because I'd go to my laptop in my study I'd keep a window open so you could always smell the smells of the night. And it was completely my time because he'd gone to bed. And if you're a mum, none of the rest of the day is your time at all. And I just had, I've never written a cookbook that I've not been also doing another job, like kind of working for the Telegraph, which is the newspaper I write for. So that cookbook I wrote completely without any other interruptions except bringing up a child. And it was, it was wonderful. And I and I didn't really know what I was doing. I just write, wrote the kind of book I'd like to read. In 2016, you published your book, Simple. Can we talk about this a little bit? I wanted to talk about this book because I think it kind of was, um, it kind of opened up people's minds to really doing delicious food, but doing really simple foods too. That that also, quite a lot of these, the, the books I do, they really come out of my, they come out of my real life. So, um, because I had two children, because Ted was such a crier, I was always kind of carrying him around on my hip. <laughs> I started doing dishes where I would just kind of like chop, put them in a, put them in a, you know, you call them a sheet pan. Here they were called um, roasting tins. Drizzle on, season drizzle on um, olive oil, stick it in the oven. And I started to do that. And then I, I mean, I don't know how many versions of that I can do with lots of different flavors and lots of different ingredients, but that became a thing I did. And then I thought, I wish I'd known about, wish I'd thought about doing this kind of cooking when I was actually working in television, because we were so tired some nights. We just didn't have, me and my husband at the time, we didn't even have the energy to cook or eat. So sometimes we just made toast and went to bed um, because it was so, because, you know, we had a bit of very late night and then we'd be up again very early the next day. But I hadn't, I didn't, I was a good cook at that time, but I did it at the weekend. I hadn't thought of as many ways to do things very simply. And then when Ted was a bit older, I could manage to do stuff that was, you know, I could see your tuna and whatever. Everything didn't have to go into the oven necessarily. But yeah. it's funny that that, which started then with a book called, I think it's Pure Simple Cooking in yeah. um, the US. Yeah. Um, then I came out later with this book called Simple. And then I came out later still with this book called From the Oven to the Table. These were ways that I felt anybody could be a cook to be honest with you if if you can do this if you can put something in the oven and you just know what to do with the things around it you can be a cook i was very bothered as it got more and more chefy here and people were watching a lot of chefy programs i just thought people are interested in this but this all this does is make them think they can't do it i mean look at their chopping skills my chopping skills are terrible i'm not a chef i'm you know i'm a home cook and i didn't want people to think 
I can't do it, I can't do it. And I could see that people around me, especially women, not men actually, who did kind of like hobby cooking at the weekend and they made a lot of effort. Yeah, but yeah. women felt kind of like, this is really difficult. And the other thing you feel as a mother, honestly, my last one just worked out. He went to university last week. And now I have an empty fridge and it's quite glorious. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm not cooking for them every night and I'm not restricted by what they kind of like, oh, mom, you know. The thing I've cooked most often in the last 20 years, and I'm ashamed to say it, is um, tuna, pasta and sweet corn. They love that. That was their favorite meal for years. <laughs> and, and if you did anything, I mean, they, they became very good eaters eventually. The other ones, the oldest is 25. Um, but they would say, if I used, if I tried to serve them up things I was testing, they go, oh, what's the trick in this? And they'd say, what oh, do you man. mean? And they said, <laughs> must have put saffron in this or something. And I, I said, no, no, no saffron. But they were very, as children are, they, yeah. they love familiar. And then they only got good at, tasting that stuff and appreciating it as they got older both of them absolutely love restaurants now they love them um but they were not good eaters when they were small they were very fussy um and i thought it is really hard for it doesn't necessarily have to be the mother it can be whoever is tasked with doing the cooking on that day feeding a family is really hard work you run out of ideas that's the worst thing you run out of ideas and then you have the whole thing about what they'll eat and what they won't eat so you have to have things that are familiar in some ways, like if there's roast chicken thighs in the dish, okay, that's the main thing, but you can keep changing the things around it. And there's a certain familiarity to that. And I just, I feel very bad about people not being able to cook or thinking that they can't because I, you know, I am I did train as a chef. I took a year out from television and I did a course at Leeds for the whole year, but I'm not incredibly skilled and I only ever cook complicated things at the weekend, but I'm able to make really delicious stuff on a Wednesday night without an awful lot of shopping, but with a little bit of thought and ideas. I think ideas are the hardest thing because I think people don't have any. And they and when they buy cookbooks, they think they're getting easy ideas and then they're not quite often. So, you know, that was the thing. I wanted to empower people, but I'm very lucky in that there's kind of two sides to me as a cook. I really love that kind of like, traveling and social context and anthropology kind of thing and yeah. then i also have the more commercial books they sell better generally but but as well as that they're kind of i want to do those books because i want people to kind of you know people write to me and say oh my god we could not have you recall weekend and everything was out of um from the oven to the table these things made me look like an amazing cook i think great that is music to my ears i think that's wonderful <laughs> yeah it's no better compliment than that i think oh no none honestly in 2018, you came out with the book, How to Eat a Peach, Menus, Stories, and Places. It's a unique blend of menus and essays. What made you decide to uh, take this tact with this book? I had wanted for years to do a book of menus. And it's kind of funny because I think I did it just in time because I think three or four course menus and I, they're kind of like going out the window. I mean, people eat, they're more keen to eat kind of several kind of like sort of main deal dishes with with a plethora of vegetables and then a pudding. I don't think people go starter, main course, pudding, cheese, whatever. Um, but I've always liked that. I love that kind of balancing of, um, you know, different different dishes together in one meal and working out what will work. I mean, when I was, I suffered from depression. Well, I don't suffer from it anymore. It's, quite, it's okay these days. But I, at one stage I had to spend 
sometime in a psychiatric hospital because I'd been because I was suffering from clinical depression. But after I sort of lifted out of that, one of the things I did every night in the kind of like television room is I used to make up menus. And not just menus for me. I used to make up entire menus for restaurants that I would never own. But I would think kind of about what kind of restaurant it was. And then what would I be putting on that night? I mean, it was pretty much kind of shape and ease. It was an Alice Waters type restaurant. Um, yeah. what, what would I be offering that night to the denizens of Berkeley? And I just, that made me so happy. And I don't know why that does that, but it's something I've done pretty much all my life is to make up menus, even though I wasn't necessarily going to cook them. I just like the thought of balancing and texture and color and the different flavors. I, I, I love thinking about that within particular, within single dishes as well as within a menu. But it also gave me a chance to kind of write about place, which is the other thing that I really love to do. I think that traveling, um, even though I'm not I'm not hugely traveled, I spoke kind of like stuck mostly to um Europe, but I think it has a big impact on me. I think it's um I don't know. I think I always find that um food is the way into somewhere and it's the way that you connect with people which isn't surprising you know if you go if you go to istanbul which is wonderful but quite overwhelming city at first and you end up um there's a great place i can't remember its name now it's kind of like not on the main it's on the you'd go over on the ferry to it and he cooks these um turkish dishes that they're old they've been around for you know centuries and you get to choose these and then you can talk to him but you're tasting Food, not just of that area, but of, but of people who've been living there for years and years. And I have this thing about always when I go places, I kind of think, could I live here? Could I live here? What, <laughs> what would it be like if I lived here? And um, that gave me the chance to write about you know, Mexico, Turkey, New York, all of these places that had a very strong, I had a very sort of strong love for, and I felt they had a very strong identity, and. I don't know. It was another book that came out of yearning, really yearning to travel, yearning to capture these places. And I loved writing that book. I absolutely loved it. But that is still worse than any of my other books. I want to talk about um, a cookbook that has been reissued right now, Roast Figs, Sugar, Snow. Um, it's it's a um, book that you've re, um, it's a new edition of a book that you've reissued. Um, how has your approach to food changed in the two decades since this was originally published? To be honest, I don't think it really has. I mean, I would still cook all of that food, but it's it's real food. I mean, I think now what we're used to is big, unfamiliar flavors. We like that. Um, we're looking for food that is faster, by and large. I mean, there's some so cook, slow cooked things in there, but also even though they're rich flavors, they're kind of stuff that's simple. You know, any braise that you build up will be you it, it's impossible to kind of like pull the various strands out of it that happens because you put on another layer and another layer and then time and the kind of softness of the actual technique itself makes that into a hole which you can't then take apart um but i think we're kind of well we i think we think slow cooking is slow i.e you have to stand there while it happens and you don't Slow cooking is really easy because you just leave things to happen a bit like you do when you roast things. The oven does all the work, but I think we're much more into riddling or, you know, and we always, we're, we're kind of like, well, I don't know what it's like there, but here it's kind of, everybody wants new things. 
got to Chang. I mean, there's a little bit, there's a, when all these kind of like new things come to the fore, there's a little bit before the supermarkets have picked it up while your food editor is saying, you know, on, on the newspaper that you're working, nobody knows what that is, Diana. And I said, trust me, they're going to know what this is like in two months' time. In two months' time, we'll all be sick of this. And, <laughs> but now it's kind of miso, fish sauce, da da da. And all the, and I'm glad actually everybody has all the Middle Eastern ingredients as well. But that's a funny thing because part of the reason for wanting to write roast figs, sugar, snow was I had a big fantasy about Scandinavia, another place that I kind of thought was quite magical in a way. And um, when I went there at first, I went to Copenhagen and I asked people what they were eating, you know, on a Wednesday night, what they were cooking. And I was hoping to find people who were kind of curing their own herring and everything. And they're eating pizza and pasta. And I thought, Oh my God. And that happened to a lot of the places I visited, unless they were very cut off, like in, in mountainous areas, like Friuli in Northeast Italy. Um, it's not that I decided, oh, I've got to rescue these recipes because that wasn't, that's kind of, that's not my, not my job. It's not my business. I don't come from these places, but I wanted to look at areas with cooking, cooking ingredients with ingredients that you could also get in the UK they're not you know we're talking about roots and things like that herring um cheeses melting cheeses so these are things that are accessible and at that time nobody was when I first wrote it nobody was craving um miso but I thought I want to I just want to record these and I want to see what people are eating in these places and that was the but it started off with kind of thinking god nobody's curing their own herring anymore <laughs> how terrible is that because I can cure mine and I'm not Danish um but then since then since I wrote that book it was kind of like that that was a kind of became a jumping off point for the book that I'm still writing I've been writing for kind of like 25 years called North I've been traveling all over that time to the Nordic countries including Iceland to the north of Germany to the Baltic States, Scotland, the very farthest islands of Scotland, like Shetland, which are really quite near um, Norway. And that's been, and that's kind of, that's kind of weird because when I started that, again, it was sort of, I want to record these dishes, but also I thought this stuff is on our doorstep. So this makes sense. Why are we, we're obsessed with the Mediterranean here and that's not bad. bad. I mean, I roast loads of trays of, you know, Mediterranean vegetables as well. But we're kind of like doing that. We're getting all our stuff in from greenhouses in Holland and we're not doing anything with carrots and beets and cauliflower and the stuff that's really, that's here and that is not expensive and that is completely delicious. It's as if we kind of, well, don't really honor or respect or appreciate what's under our noses. And that's very human. But I wanted to show um partly in those things and now again in this book that i'm working on that um this stuff this stuff is here and it's good and there are interesting things you can do with it if you are a british cook germany the north of germany is a very good hunting ground um if you you know if you know what kind of unusual things they grow or they they make in shetland and i think oh my god that's something i could do too i never thought of that so it's been a big kind of journey and I only finished the research for it last year. Um, just covering this whole thing. I'm not, I'm not against people loving kind of like Southern countries of Europe. I think since we had Elizabeth David, 
and before probably, and then started going on package holidays and things. We love the sun. We kind of like, we think that Britain is kind of like bleak and drab and cold. And, and we cannot, you know, we've been really drawn to, especially to Italy, I think. And I thought that's kind of fine. You know, we're, we can all cook it. To, I mean, I don't know what I do with like pasta, but it's a bit like you're missing out here. You're missing out if you don't look at this stuff as well. One of the things I loved about this cookbook in particular, among other things, because there's so many things that I love about it, is that <clears throat> oftentimes when I see anything written about wintertime food, it's always the knee-jerk ubiquitous Christmas food or something, and, and it's or, or Thanksgiving here in America food, and it's just usually the same kind of stuff. And this really kind of addresses some of the food that's available in the late winter, uh, the late fall and winter months, and I really love that. Um, what When you started writing this, could did you have a sense of that? Like, what, what did you want to kind of convey to the readers? Well, I, go ahead. It was kind of easy because I really love snow. And I just kept going to snowy places where the food would be warming. And it wouldn't necessarily be the kind of stuff that you would cook at Christmas or that you would cook, you know, in America at Thanksgiving. It was food that they were that they were eating all the time in very cold weather. Yeah. Um. So I didn't have to. And also, because I love snow, I would like everybody else to. She loves snow too. I would like them to kind of like get the thing about snow and about the coziness of stuff. I mean, we had a thing for, you know, we had for ages, we had the kind of hygge thing here. Everybody was talking about it. The Scandinavian kind of sense of being, you know, comfortable and cozy. And it, it became a bit sort of like horribly sentimental in a way. Um, but it is kind of attached to that. But it's also just that I think the, I can't remember what it's the Finns or the Icelandic that have a phrase for this. They love watching snow through a window where it's warm. So they're inside looking at it at falling. And I really love that idea. And I am that person. Um, and I think we're quite bad at wintering. I think we're quite bad at it in the UK. I actually don't think you're bad at it at all in the US. Because, you know, it starts with the pumpkins and then it goes on and you love all the kind of like all the, the cranberries and all the stuff that comes out at that time of year. But um, here, it's, people are just a bit money. And this this woman actually called Catherine May, she wrote a book about it a couple of years ago and it was just called Wintering. And it was about how um, we can approach winter better, what we can see as the good things about it. I mean, I think one of the good things is that you retreat, you go indoors. And that seems negative because that's not about being sociable. But it is about stopping, refueling, contemplating. You know, the winter is a good time. It's not about everything dying. It's about you taking time out. And that's very valuable time, I think. But I also think that you can be good also at the, not just the contemplative stuff, but the actual positive stuff that's about making things. In the, the Time Life book on Scandinavian cooking, I've got a copy and it's completely ancient. There's this line that says um, that the Scandinavians, food is a Scandinavian's antidote to winter. And I sort of know, I know what he means, but like, it's sort of like Scandinavian cold weather baking is fantastic. And you go there and, you know, even in little coffee shops, they've got candles on from 10 o'clock in the morning. It's not even dark, but candlelight, mugs of coffee or chocolate, those lovely buns, you know, they seem to sort of embrace it in a way in Britain that we don't. So I suppose I wanted to say cold weather can be great and 
Snow is absolutely fantastic. And these are the kind of things that you can eat. And people who are living not very far away from you are cooking these things. I really loved the look of the book. Um, it was beautiful. It, it's rare that I'll read a cookbook that I would take it to a decorator and say, decorate my house in this palette. This is, what <laughs> I, this, this, this is the palette that I want for my home. And because it's, it's a lush book. Can you talk about how you kind of contributed to the design of it and the look of it? Well, with this one, that was one of my very early ones. And um, it was with a photographer that I don't do work with anymore. But I've always got this. I think just because I was in worked in TV, I've got a kind of strong, a strong sense of what I want the feel of a book to be like. And you have to be really careful because you can have that and then you can do stuff that's just you kind of help to create photos that are a bit, what would the word be? Uh, really aspirational. And of course you sort of want them to be things that people want, but I know I don't, um, I don't have props in from, you know, I don't go to the Conran shop place here. That's very smart and, and bring in loads of props from there. I use a lot of the things that I've bought over the years and I love it. If particular plates keep appearing in them over the time that they've been, that I've been writing because that comes from a person's life. And I also, I think there's a real loveliness and domesticity that people, certainly when I started reading, didn't quite appreciate, but Nigel Slater really did. I mean, Nigel Slater, people think of him as a great writer and he is a great writer and a great kind of like, you know, creator of recipes, but he's a fantastic, and this is kind of like the, the wrong word to use, but he's a fantastic stylist. He's got a great eye and he could see that the kind of like that the domestic, you know, just an ordinary glass of water and or a little bowl that was kind of slightly chipped. He would see that there was beauty in this. And I felt really, really influenced by him. I mean, my stuff doesn't look like his, but I think his approach really made me be like that. So in the last kind of eight books, I suppose, um, I've become much more hands-on. So I work with one photographer now and the same cook. And I've had the same, I've actually had the same designer do all of my books, except this reissue of Rose Fig Sugar Snow. I'm now working with a fantastic guy called Matt Cox. But for years, I was with this woman called Miranda Harvey. We were incredibly close, but it got to her 60th and she wanted to start painting. She wanted to do that. She didn't want to be in the book world anymore. But we could finish each other's sentences. And I learned a lot from her about kind of like, in within a particular picture to keep the palette quite limited and and to kind of like rein this whole thing. Publishers basically, they love really colorful books. They think people want rose peppers and tomatoes and you know green array and it all has to be like that. It's terribly dull. And <laughs> I, I kind of thought much more about not just the feel across a book, but how I wanted a specific picture of something to look. And Miranda, had an even she was better at she was better at framing than I was. But we would pull together all of the plates and cloths and everything that I'd collected up over the years. And we would kind of like say, oh, the, okay, these are the options for the photograph of whatever. We'll see what works. But then it's very sort of organic because we can have that idea. And then Laura looks at it or we put it in front of the camera. And it's like, oh God, that's really dull. So those days are very hard work. Those, I mean, those yeah. days are harder work than the days I spend. Um, writing because it's stressful you've got to finish everything by like four o'clock you lose the light so yeah. you've got to think quite quickly but I do think 
I do think that those are the days when the books are actually given life. I mean, your words do it, but people aren't people aren't picking up cookbooks and reading your words mostly. They're yeah. flicking and they're looking at the titles of the recipes and they're looking at the pictures. And I think it's to do with the feeling they get. I also think it's very important to kind of like, I like it when cookbooks have a sense of a particular person. I mean, most people write the text and, you know, they send that in and not everybody goes on their sheets even. They kind of leave that to other people. And I don't understand that. But I'm terribly, um, yeah, I'm very hands-on, probably to a very annoying degree. I don't know. I mean, I will have a hissy fit about the colour of the ribbon or something like that. Well, I mean, it pays off. The, the, the books are beautiful. Yeah, it's also very, because the next one's very long. It's 400 pages, and that's Ooh. really daunting. Yeah. And you think, God, that takes... Because the thing has to kind of like change. I think you should be able to start at the beginning of a book and there's a progression as you go along it, even though that's not the way most people read cookbooks. Yeah. Um, but it, it's harder. But yes, I think I want a book to have a complete sense and I really work hard on that aspect of them. Now that it's getting to be cold where you're at, what are the things you're looking for in the shops or the um, you know farmer's markets where things that you're looking to buy right now to cook with? Do you have quinces in America? I never can remember whether oh, you have or not. It's funny, Minta. I was just gifted some from a friend. I, I I look for them around here, and occasionally I can get them. But I I love them myself, and I I have I've been canning them for the last month. Really? Yeah. I didn't think you could get those there. I regard them as such a kind of like British and Middle Eastern thing. Here it's a very kind of old fashioned fruit, so you'll get people have it in their gardens and not even know what you know, not even be particularly excited about it. It's in some garden that they inherited when they bought this house. Um, yeah, I love quinces, things that are, you see, it's an, it's an otherworldly fruit. It really is. I mean, look, look at it. Kind of, it's so voluptuous and it's got that kind of like fuzziness across it, which is very mm -hmm. odd. And then you have to cook them. I mean, you can eat them as they are, <laughs> but they have that, it's, inc they're incredibly perfumed. I mean, I've seen recipes for people cooking quinces in Sautern and I think, what are you doing? You don't need sauterne if you're cooking quinces because it's got all the kind of honeyness that you need. Um, yeah. So I think they're lovely. And I love using those in, I just did a dish recently actually about, um, it was lamb meatballs with quinces. And Ooh. well, wasn't you? Well, I started off thinking, oh, I'll do something a bit Middle Eastern. And then I ended up in Spain when I was thinking about it. So some sherry vinegar went into it as well because kind of like up through the sweetness of the quince. So so I love that. I love pumpkins. And all my American friends, they go, you and pumpkins. I mean, every year I have to kind of like do a whole piece on them for the Telegraph. And I never run out of things to say. And I never run out of recipes. I just, I think, it, well, I didn't grow up with them. When we were growing up, we thought that pumpkins were things associated with America. But when we had Halloween and things like that, we had to have turnips. That's what you had in Northern Ireland. You had turnips. Which yeah. if you think that cutting, carving a pumpkin is bad, it's nothing compared to carving a turnip. No, I've so, done it. It's, it's hard. They're just a kind of, they're just sort of another one of those magical ingredients to me. And I love the flavor. I love them in stuffed pasta, you know, with amaretti biscuits. And I, I suppose I quite, I quite like sweet things actually. And I make loads of different soups every year as well. Um, and that's one of my favorites. And apples and pears. I love those. And the nuts. I cook a lot with nuts, even though I wasn't really aware of it until somebody pointed it out to me. But um, 
hazelnuts are lovely and kind of, you know, I've kind of called them before this, the soprano of the nut world. They're kind of like, <laughs> you know, they're kind of like, because they're, they're little and they're kind of like, you think they would sing and walnuts are very deep. So they're really down there. So they're very base, I think. But and between those, you know, there's lots of other things. Oh, I love pecans. Ooh, and you yeah. call pecans, don't you? Well, yeah, pecans yeah. here. Um, I love those as well because also I think I associate pecans with maple syrup. They're very they go very well with it. There's a kind of maple syrupy thing with with pecans, and I think yeah, they work well together. I love things like I make an an applesauce cake that's got a a maple syrup frosting and pecans on it and, and also chopped pecans in the batter. I, I love that. That's that's really American. I have I have also kind of like loved American food, but not the kind of American food you think, not not necessarily burgers and that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 but yeah. pumpkins, wild rice, corn, all the things that I think of as American and sort of like an, another thing I grew up thinking about. And I the camp cooking in California even though I hadn't had yet visited California, had a, had a massive effect on me. I mean, Alice Waters. I know people kind of are a bit mean about her nowadays. Um, but when I first got, when I first got um, the Chez Panisse menu cookbook, I mean, I picked it up in her. I didn't know who she was. I picked it up in a bookshop where it had been remaindered, actually. And I flipped oh, wow. through it. And it was just like, oh, my God. Like, she thinks that griddled pork with... Um, plums makes a or or with roasted peppers that's a meal and then you can have you have a re really easy thing to go before it like maybe which is also a cliche now baked garlic and goat's cheese and then maybe you can end with a fruit or you end with just an ice cream and it was so simple but so focused on specific ingredients at a time when we in the uk had nouvelle cuisine that was going on which yeah. was all you know hexagonal plates and everything complicated so her, her food seemed absolutely revolutionary at the time. So she had a huge influence. And I would never, I'd never, I would never ever not count her as a as a kind of main person. So did uh, Claudia Roden, massive kind of influence because she saw food within this kind of cultural context. And then Jane Grigson, which I don't think people know so well in the United States. Um, oh, yeah. She's big here, too. Oh, and she's kind of wonderful, you know, kind of writing about food that contains travelogue, memoir, you know, a lot of scholarship, but not kind of like worn into obvious a way, poetry and bits of research that she's done. I mean, and every ingredient that she writes about is different. She can always say something that's worth hearing about a strawberry or an apple or whatever. So she was, I don't think I'd probably be a food writer if it hadn't been for Jane Grigson because I had no intention to be one. I just loved her stuff. And I read it, and it wasn't until I had Ted that I even thought, maybe I should do this as a career. Maybe this could be a good thing. You said once in an interview that it's your mission to empower people to cook. Can you talk about this a little bit? I think that I have to... It's very interesting. We were talking about this recently, how people write up recipes. And I'm quite lyrical in the other things that I write. So it would be good to be kind of like a bit vague. A kind of like handful of this and all of that but I'm very aware I've got friends who can't cook they really hate it and I made a decision that I had to be as exact as possible when I was writing the recipes 
that I had to anticipate as long as there was room. That's the thing that happens. This kind of thing gets cut and then it's not a complete recipe. Um, why they need to do something, because if they don't do that, this will happen instead. Um, otherwise, they just might leave it out because they're not experienced enough. So I wanted to be very clear, a very clear narrator of recipes. It had to be like, it had to be kind of an instruction book, not the whole book, because the whole book is couched in this other thing, which makes it warmer. But I thought I had to be very clear in the writing of the recipes, exactly what somebody had to do. And what's been interesting, actually, in rereading um, Roast Fig Sugar Snow, there's some things I don't understand myself. I'm looking at it from years later, and I'm thinking, what do I mean? And I've rewritten things when I've kind of like come across that sort of thing. I did quite a lot of recipe rewriting for the book. And that was kind of a great joy because, you know, it just means the recipes were better. And any recipe that anyone had ever contacted me about that they had trouble with, I retested and rewrote those as well. Diana, what's next for you? Oh, I have to finish North and I have to finish it by the end of 2025, which sounds like a lot of time, uh, but it's not. So there'll be that. I'm already thinking about the book after that and the book after that again. So I have to get on with it because otherwise, I mean, I might actually not get all the books done that I'd like to do before I die. So, you know, when I was very ill last year and actually, or two years ago, and did actually nearly die, I had my lungs hemorrhage. I have this thing called vasculitis. When oh I God, came up, I didn't think, oh, you got to slow down now. I thought, oh my God, well, you've got to hurry up because there's all this stuff to be done. Plus there's loads of the world to see. Plus there's loads of books still to be read. So I had kind of more of a sense of, urgency and also nearly dying really makes you appreciate life i mean i think i was quite good at appreciating it anyway but it does really do that i think so absolutely diane i want to thank you for being on the podcast i've loved getting a chance to talk to you it's been wonderful been a pleasure that was my conversation with diana henry her book figs sugar snow will be out tomorrow as of this um release and you could purchase this today um, in advance, or you can purchase it tomorrow right away. It's available through all uh, major online book re retail outlets, and you can also get it at all better bookstores. Next week, we're going to be speaking with author Jacqueline Chiolori with her book, We Cook Filipino. We'll be talking with her next week. Until then, I'll see you at the library. <laughs>